Welcome to episode 95 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Jesse, it's Question Cast. Question Cast. I'm super, is the best. super excited. I love this because it's great to hear from brothers and sisters to have other voices in the conversation. And we're getting so many wonderful voicemails. So even if for some reason we don't answer somebody's particular question today, we listen to everything and we're going to get around to it eventually. Yeah. Yeah. We're excited. Keep them coming. Don't uh, be discouraged. If you have something that you absolutely want us to answer and you think maybe it's time sensitive or something, um, then maybe also shoot us an email just to let us know that. But we're going to work through the questions as much as we can. We've got great questions today, so how about we get after it? Let's go for it. Hey, guys. My name is Chris Lilly. I'm calling from Minneapolis, Minnesota. A long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, first of all, I just want to say that I really appreciate the podcast. I listen as often as I can, and I find it really encouraging. And It always makes me think more deeply and critically about lots of areas of theology, so I really appreciate that. So keep up the good work. Uh, second, I also just want to say that uh, I knew Tony before he was famous, before he was a solid block of reformed granite. So uh, just going to leave that there. No. Um, my question uh, concerns the nature of election, and particularly with respect to whether or not God's choice of election is potentially arbitrary. And my question goes something along the lines of this. Um, from reading reformed theology, it seems to me to be fairly obvious that um, God's choice of election between individuals is not at all based in anything to do in the individual. It's not based on foreseen merits or foreseen uh, faith. It's based solely in uh, the good pleasure of God and in God's will. So that being the case, um, wouldn't this open up the charge of God's choice being potentially uh, arbitrary, since there's nothing really in anyone uh, that would make one a better choice than the other. Um, God's electing one over the other isn't based on one being oh, slightly more electable than the other. So if that's the case, um, wouldn't the choice be uh, potentially arbitrary and therefore impugn God's goodness? If there's no real rational decision to be made since all choices are equal, ultimately, um, wouldn't that be something, couldn't something like that be applied to God's choice uh, in choosing, say, to elect one and not the other, even if it's based completely and fully in God's uh, will and on good, good, God's good pleasure, if that's the case, uh, even if that's the case, um, wouldn't the choice ultimately be arbitrary, even on God's part, and therefore potentially impugn God's uh, goodness? So this is an excellent question from Chris. I love that you asked this, and we did have to edit it down just a little bit for, for brevity's sake. But this is a good place for us to start the conversation today. Let's just go right after it. So Chris wants to know, is God's choice of election potentially arbitrary? I'll, I'll let you go first. Yeah, before I answer the question, I received permission to do this. Chris is actually, if you remember, I've talked about my friend of mine that kind of spun off into liberalism, and yeah. then just through reading the scriptures... Um, finally just sort of recognize the truth of Reformed theology without a lot of outside help. This is Chris. That's the guy. All so, right. um, it, Chris is a living, breathing, walking example of the power of the Holy Spirit working through the scripture 
and the power of God's election just kind of operative in time. So um, so now there's no more hidden mystery when I tell that story. It's Chris Lilly from Minneapolis. I went to college with him. He's a great dude. Um, so the, the crux of Chris's question, and I talked to him a, a little bit about this offline too um, before or right after he called in, is I think that there's actually sort of a subtle um, Arminianism or latent Arminianism that's kind of built into the premise of this question. So Chris's question more or less is, since God does not base his decision on reasons within the human, is it then not based on any reasons? And right. the reason I say it's it's kind of a little bit of Arminianism kind of smuggled in the back door is because... Um, it's still operating on the idea that God is is sort of looking to something outside of himself in terms of making decisions about the election of a person. In in this case, it, you know, in the Armenian schema, he's looking at foreseen faith. Some some uh, Calvinists would sort of appeal to some idea that like each person fills a particular role in God's kingdom, and so he has to pick the right ones to kind of fit that together. But at the end of the day, it's actually got the it's got the order wrong. So election comes as a result of the decree or as part of God's decree. So it's not as though God is looking at people and kind of going, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, I pick that one, I pick that one. Right. Instead, he's creating, um, he's creating people or he's decreeing that certain persons would be created as vessels of mercy or vessels of wrath. So God's choice is not arbitrary because God's choice is intentional and it serves to um, bring about the maximal glorification or the maximal manifestation of his glory in time, right? So I don't have the passage in front of me, but there's the famous passage in Romans where if what if God was preparing vessels of wrath in order to demonstrate his his justice? And what if God was preparing vessels of mercy in order to demonstrate his grace? So, so that question, like I said, is kind of flipped on his head a little bit. That's a great point, Tony. I like where you're going with that because I was thinking about election in the grandest sense. And in that way, it can't be arbitrary because the elect are chosen in Christ. So what I mean by that is, although the elect are chosen in Christ, Christ is not the cause of that election any more than like faith or good works could be the cause of that election. So the sovereignty of God doesn't suffer any other cause besides itself. And because Christ himself is the object of election, he is the savior by election. So at the Top definition, election can't be arbitrary. But that also goes back to what you were saying about it being purposeful. So even if we think in these terms, because some of this is just perspective from a human viewpoint, but if we talk about probability and laws of average and randomness, even those things themselves are laws that God has put into place because he's sovereign over all those things. So we really can't escape the fact that in election, there is a motive of love and purpose. And the other thing, there's there's two other things to keep in mind. So the the part of Chris's call that we um, edited out was this sort of this parable of a donkey, and basically the idea is like if you have a donkey that is um, fifty miles away from water and fifty miles away from food, and it's equally hungry and equally thirsty, what's going to happen is the donkey's going to die in that spot because it has no reason to go one direction versus the other. And so he he's kind of asking if if we fall into a trap where God's election is kind of the same way. Well, the first thing is uh, God doesn't deliberate, so arbitrary it sort of involves the idea of deliberation, um, or rather the lack of deliberation. But God doesn't deliberate and he doesn't fail to deliberate. He simply, he is, he's pure actuality. So whatever God does, he does because of who he is. Now, there's another paradoxical situation where we run into that, 
that potentially could make creation necessary, but that's a, a different question cast. But the, the other flip side of it is there are some times in theology. Um, now, Chris's training is primarily philosophical. He's doing his doctoral work on uh, Thomas Aquinas. And there are times in philosophy or analytical theology that we just have to step back and say, well, this is what the scripture says. And so even though I can't necessarily wrap my head around it, I still have to just trust the scriptures. And so the scripture explicitly says that God God foreordains all things according to the purpose of his will. So we may not ever know exactly what those purposes are. We may not never know what the, the internal counsel of God is, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. Right. But the Bible tells us explicitly that whatever he does, he has his reasons and they're perfectly good, holy and wise reasons. So we know that election is not arbitrary, even if we can't necessarily explain exactly how that functions. Right. This is just a question of trying to understand, well, if God says there's no criteria on which I would select somebody in a meritorious kind of way, when that gets taken away from us, it feels like, well, what else could there possibly be? Right. That would be a good reason. But in the mind of God, there is one for sure. And that's because election really in kind of a threefold way is both God choosing the persons, but then he, in the second way, he's also determining the means by which he's accomplishing that right. election. And then thirdly, he's establishing the purpose of election, namely the glorification of his mercy and the salvation of his people through Jesus Christ. All those things are very deliberate. And right. it, it kind of, as you go through that list, there's kind of almost like an increasing level of purposefulness in what's being done there. Right. And that goes back to the the main point that I made out kind of out of the gate is that it's not as though God creates Tony and Jesse and then says, all right, which one of these two neutral people am I going to choose? What he does is he says, I'm going to create Jesse and Jesse is going to be a person that I've created to glorify me by saving. And then he says, I'm going to choose Tony. And obviously I don't think I'm reprobate. This is just, an example. <laughs> but he says, I'm going to create Tony and I'm, I'm creating Tony in order to be a vessel of wrath. So election and creation or election, uh, predestination, properly speaking, is not just the predestination of an already neutrally considered person. Predestination includes being created as a vessel of God's mercy or as a vessel of God's wrath. And that's where the reformed view of election sort of flips over from um, some things like Lutheranism or some other kinds of predestinarian uh, theologies is reformed theology starts with God's decree in a way that a lot of other systems don't. Right. And Ephesians one reminds us that, and I've, I've always come back to this it says in verse five in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself. Right as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, as you said earlier. And I think we often just run by the preposition in love. So love is an act of purpose. And Chris is right. If we go to the place where we say, basically, you know, me and you, Tony, we become elect because basically we won a lottery, some kind of like heavenly lottery that allowed us to come in. That goes right against God's loving character. Yeah. Uh, because not only are we taking, like you said, reasons outside of God himself for making the choice as if God is relying on some kind of process, even if he created one to determine who it is that would be elect, but that is also against his loving character. Right. And the, the last thing I'll say before we move on is in a certain sense, um, the category of arbitrary versus not arbitrary doesn't even make sense when you're talking about God. It's it's a non sequitur because right. 
what's something that a decision that's arbitrary is something that happens with no prior cause. So, but, but God is the first cause of all things. So I guess, yes, we could say it's arbitrary because there's no prior cause to God's decree. It's not as though God is, is deliberating and making decisions based on something prior to his own being. Um, but that's what I mean when I say like arbitrary isn't even, it's a kind of a category error in terms of this discussion. Right. It's even the words are failing to try to really describe what's happening here. Yeah. All right. Let's go on to the next question. Let's do it. Hey, you guys. It's Danny calling from Moscow, Idaho. I love the cast. Love what you guys are doing. <clears throat> Keep up the great work. Uh, I just have one question, and it's about limited atonement. So, um, yeah, it's a little bit myself. I'm, I'm 20 years old, and I'm a, you know, a growing Christian. And I'm, like, pretty sure that I'm a Calvinist. I'm, like, yeah, I'm pretty convinced I'm a Calvinist. Um, but limited atonement is something I'm still struggling with and working working through. And um, my position on it is that I accept it. Like, I, I believe that it's a reality, you know, that God chooses some to be his life and passes over others. Um, so I'm not really having trouble accepting its truth or its reality. But I am definitely struggling about struggling with how to handle it emotionally um, and just on, on, a, you know, on a personal level. Um, because, you know, there's people that I know that I'm like, Man, maybe they're just not elect, or there's, I'm talking to a friend and they have a family member that, who is walking away, or, uh, and they're just like, yeah, you know, maybe they're not elect. Maybe God just didn't choose them. Um, and that's a tough pill to swallow. And I'm just kind of struggling with how to deal with that emotionally. So, yeah, thanks so much for what you guys are doing with the podcast. And I appreciate if you guys give me your thoughts on. Unlimited Thanks, guys. Bye. So this is a great question from Danny in Moscow, Idaho. 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 Yeah, that's Who that's knew? Doug Wilson land. Is it really? It is. Yeah. Well, that's good stuff. So I think this is a really great question because it's pretty honest and it's moving us from just the theological understanding and intellectual ascent of this idea of limited atonement into how do we kind of deal with the emotional ramifications of what that actually means. Like when we put feet on the ground with this piece of theology, we're talking about it, we're trying to understand it. How do we really kind of come to bear the weight of what it means on our emotions? And I think where I would start with this is that limited atonement really cannot be considered in isolation. So I think the critical starting point is really the depraved nature of humankind. Right. So if total depravity means that fallen mankind is depraved in every part of his being, then that means our intellect is so depraved that we can't understand the things of God. Our affections are all out of whack because they're centered on ourselves and the things of the world so that we can't receive the things of God. It also means that we are limited to just doing that which is according to our falling nature. So total depravity includes a total inability to do anything that pleases God. And so I think some people presume that the gospel offers this personal relationship with God. But I like that Calvin, I think in his institutes, presumes that that's already the case. He basically says that, you know, we're created in a covenantal relationship with God. Everybody knows God by nature. And given our fallen condition before God, whenever we encounter the slightest presence of the true God, our conscience is struck with fear so that we flee. Right. So my starting point is, yes, this is like a really heavy truth. But I think the even heavier truth is the fact that nobody at all deserves to be selected to come into the presence of God and to dwell with him in communal fellowship. And so when we start there, 
you know, limited atonement is really good news because the bottom line is we all deserve the flames. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think another element of it, there's um, a couple things, is um, limited atonement as it's phrased is just a poor way to phrase that. Yes, I agree. Describe it. So the I agree. The emotional reaction is to the is to the limited idea of that. And yes, the the atonement is limited. um, So it's a it's a true statement. But that's not really getting at what the point of this part of the tulip is. So I've found that um, you know, and someone who's interacted with uh, Calvinists online they're going to understand what you're doing and they're probably going to think you're just trying to pull the this bait and switch. But if you have someone that's really genuinely interested in understanding what you're saying, then reframing it and rephrasing it to say, well, what we believe is that not a single drop of God's of, of Christ's blood was wasted on the cross. Not a single uh, person whom Christ desired to save was lost. Christ never fails to recapture his lost sheep. And when you frame right. it in that way and you you point it more at what it's intended to do, which is to preserve God's um, God's efficacy in the atonement, it sort of changes the conversation. So rather than arguing about whether or not Christ loved the, the reprobate, which is a valid discussion to have, but it, it, it generates these tough emotions. Now you're talking about whether or not Christ could accomplish what he set out to do, whether or not Christ actually accomplished the will of the Father. Exactly. Um, and the other, the other thing I would say is that a lot of times um, Calvinists fall into the trap of preaching like a hyper-Calvinist because of what they believe about limited atonement. And what I mean by that is um, Calvinists often feel like we can't present the same gospel to the reprobate that we do to the elect. And the problem with that is we we don't know who the elect are. And so we try to kind of hedge our gospel presentation so that we're not saying something that is strictly speaking untrue. So we won't say things to a crowd like Christ died for you or Christ Christ atoned for your sin. Well, there's a certain level of truth to that, that if, if I know someone is a reprobate, then telling them that Christ died for them is, is a false promise. It's a false statement. But the gospel presentation in the scripture is almost universally um, preached universally in a sense. So, so right. the, the apostles don't seem to hedge their statements that way. Um, the reformers didn't seem to hedge their statement that way. Um, you know, I'm reading through the whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson a second time. And one of the main components in the whole Christ is not just the marrow controversy um, or the ordo salutis, which was a major part of the, the uh, marrow controversy, but how it affects our gospel proclamation. And he makes the point that a lot of people that we would look to as reliable expositors of the scripture, Westminster Divine, Samuel Rutherford, I mean, people who are, there aren't higher Calvinists, they say things like, we should say to all that Christ is dead for you, meaning that Christ, Christ's death is for you. And, and we don't have to try to parse out who is the elect and who's the reprobate. And we don't have to put qualifying statements on there and say something like, Christ died for you. If you are among the elect, or if you believe, we can just say to a crowd of people, Christ died for you, and that death saves those whom he called. Now, we have to be careful not to slip into kind of like a unintentional hypothetical universalism, and some of the divines were accused of this, um, but we don't have to do that. And that that gospel preaching 
I would say deficiency or weakness that is present in some Calvinists, that tends to be what people latch onto in this terms of this emotional argument. They'll say something like, well, you, you can't even tell someone Christ died for them. Um, so I think if we can reframe the discussion around the fact that this is about preserving God's efficacy in the atonement, in the atonement, um, and then also preach the gospel rightly in terms of the way that the scriptures do, um, that goes a long way to kind of mitigate some of these these challenges. I'm glad you brought that up because I do think the word limited in limited atonement may be misconceived because the real choice which the Christian faces is not between limited and unlimited atonement, but it's actually between definite and indefinite atonement right. or between like personal or impersonal atonement. So Jesus didn't obviously die for abstractions, but again, in love, he predestined some to receive him by faith as a gracious gift. Right. So I, I think maybe using the, a different type of language, and that's not to necessarily make this a psychological trick, but it is to say that, and hopefully this doesn't come out the wrong way, but here's how I would, how I would understand this, how I kind of process this emotionally, is the depravity of man should lead us to be neither too proud of our salvation or too empathetic for the unrepentant sinner. Right. Because the bottom line is that's all we deserve. So I, I go back to what Paul was writing to Timothy, who he's giving, you know, all this kind of fatherly advice to as like a preacher. And he says in First Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Right. And when I start there, the emotional burden of what it means to be a rebel of God, to have a clenched fist within inside of me that resists him in every conceivable way. And then for him to somehow reach down in his graciousness and rescue me from that when there was nothing in this world that would require him to do that. It's under his own volition and then a volitional sacrifice yeah. on top of that. I don't know that it takes the sting away from the limited atonement, but it makes me rejoice and it makes me want to really have a burden to pray and to speak the truth in love to all kinds of people, like you were saying, without exception, because I want that for everybody. But I know that nobody deserves it, and least of all me. Yeah, and as far as like the the internal emotions that it generates, what's always helped me is to remember that there there really are only two options: either Christ saved the elect, and that salvation is being applied in time, or Christ makes the elect savable. Right. And and for me, that has helped me kind of grapple with this sort of existential aspect of limited atonement is that. Rather than seeing limited atonement as like a, a weight for me to bear or a, um, a limitation on God, what it's actually saying is Christ actually concretely and really saved the elect. And that right is, a, is a huge source of encouragement and assurance. Now, our assurance can't be in our election because, like I've said in the past, we, we can't see our election and we're never told to look for it. But um, the fact is that those whom Christ has saved, he really, really has saved. If the son has set you free, he has set you free indeed. Well, unless you affirm limited atonement, you can't actually say that because maybe the son has set you free, but you'll go back into your bondage. Um, but what limited atonement is really saying is that once the Christ, once the son has set you free, then you are free indeed because he's actually accomplished it. Right on. And in point of fact, doesn't everybody really, well, everybody who, let's say, is a believer in Christ, everybody believes in limited atonement. Right. It's just in what way? Either it's limited by God or limited by man and his right. choice. Exactly. So everybody has to give an answer for that question. And basically the superstructure which we're talking about 
says that God does it on his own. And like you said, it's like 100% guaranteed that the, when he elects, he sees that through to the end, all the right. way to glorification. And so in some respects, the unrepentant sinner is getting exactly what they want. Right. And so the only reason we are coming into the family of Christ, that we have any kind of warm affection for him is because that's what God has done to change our will to allow that kind of thing. So right. this is one of those things where it's almost kind of like the Burger King thing, like have it your way. You know what I mean? <laughs> I do know what you mean. Now I want a burger. So yeah, I could definitely rock a burger right now. So that's not to say again that there isn't something to process here, but I think I'm totally with you. Sometimes it's good to think about this in terms of how much we can be encouraged by how strong God's love is for us, yeah. how deep and wide that really is. And here's where we see the depth and the breadth of it in its all its beauty and all its practicalness. Yep, exactly. All right, let's listen to the next up uh, next. Let's listen to the next voicemail. Hello, fellas. This is Jimmy from Philly. I was thinking about how a lot of us who kind of came into Reformed faith from like the general evangelicalism, non-denominationalism, kind of grew up in an atmosphere of this bit pushing the decision, pushing the pray to pray the sinner's prayer and that style of evangelism. And I think a lot of us who discover Reformed theology, the sovereignty of God in election, don't really know how to do evangelism afterwards. Like, what what would you suggest for, rather than just saying, oh, pray this sinner's prayer, or just pray to ask Jesus come into your heart, how would you present the gospel to someone who seems to genuinely want to receive it? Um, because of the workings of the Holy Spirit, obviously, we know from our theology. But yeah, thank you for all that you guys do. Grace and peace. <laughs> all right, my brother Jimmy from the city of brotherly love. So this is a great question because we kind of naturally steered our conversation into this direction anyway. But I like this, and this comes up quite a bit. And the question is, how would we present the Gospels or form people that would be different from, let's say, me, mainland evangelicalism, like vis-a-vis -vis the sinner's prayer thing? you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, what I would say is we, we wouldn't present the Gospel itself any differently. Um, the, the means of justification or the means of um, accepting the Gospel is what's different. But the Gospel itself, that Christ died for sinners, that Christ um, Christ brings his own into his kingdom and that he certainly saves those who um, the father has given to him. That's not any different. Um, you know, you have a lot of Arminian preachers who wouldn't preach that, but as far as a mainline evangelical who's sort of uh, mainline is not the right word, uh, a more just evangelical, we'll just say evangelical mainline has a different connotation. Um, but the, the sinner's prayer specifically is, is a decisional regeneration. It turns that prayer into a sacrament of sort, a converting sacrament that the Bible never prescribes. So nowhere right. in the scripture does anyone say, now with all every eye closed and every head bowed, just repeat after me. Now, the closest we have to it actually is in the book of Acts, where they say, well, what must I do to be saved? And the response is, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. So right. the, the idea of an altar call or the idea of, of encouraging people who are 
um, who are converting to Christianity to pray a specific prayer or do a certain action. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But where the problem comes in, I think, um, is this idea that this sinner's prayer has some sort of special efficacy. So much so that some places, like if you get the words wrong, you know, it can actually be problematic. Unless you have these specific patterns of words and they're prayed by the person, then then it's not a real conversion. Um, that's that's basically um, that's basically a form of Roman Catholic, you know, sacramentalism, where right. this prayer has some sort of spiritual efficacy that can change your soul. Well, Roman Catholics say, well, if you pray this particular prayer, we call it the Hail Mary, or you pray this prayer, it's the Our Father. If you pray this, then God gives you spiritual grace that that changes you. Well, this is not all that different. So the difference between the Reformed perspective on the gospel and the um, sort of the sinner's prayer perspective is in what prayer is actually doing. Does that make sense? I like sense? this idea. Yeah, I like this idea of like reformed evangelism in a way. Mm-hmm. And thinking to the passage that you're quoting from Acts, I'm always shocked by how often we forget that in all those accounts where you have somebody coming forward and saying, what must I do to be saved? And that yeah. does happen several times in the Gospels. That is quickly basically used by mostly Arminians to say, well, see, here we have somebody asking what they have to do, and there's a choice involved, and there's an action that they take. But in every one of those passages, especially the one you talked about, which is from Peter preaching at Pentecost, the scripture says there, and they were cut to the heart. Right. So we always have it preceded by some action of God where it's changing the will in such a way that now there is actually an interest but that first cause is not the person themselves suddenly coming to like better knowledge or right. hearing like a really moving you know piece of oration. So my thinking on this has really evolved over time and I'm about to just bust out some like, you know, Bonson Voss style oh, explanation man. here because I I really think reformed evangelism has to be presuppositional rather than experiential. Yes. Preach. Um, you know, preach. I mean, all right, we're about to have some church. So the Bible is really the only infallible rule of faith and practice. So we cannot throw out the Bible to seriously evangelize the message contained within it. So it's got to be focused on the scriptures and it's got to come from the perspective of Romans 1 that really, for the most part, outside of God's marvelous and mighty working in somebody's heart and life, nobody wants to hear this news. Um, because it just brings more condemnation. It Again, it makes us flee in our conscience from what we know to be the case in this world in terms of truth and light. Second is, I think confessional statements are an important part of how we think about Reformed evangelism. Yeah, I mean, a confession is not like the final source of authority, but it is a great place to have a concise treatment of Christian doctrine. I think that was something we should be metabolizing regularly. And then the last thing I would say is that we need to define evangelism properly, because I think sometimes we think of evangelism as including the result, which is ideally of reaching men for Christ. Right. That is certainly the goal, and that's true, but evangelism should not be defined in terms of the results. It really should be defined in terms of the activity of setting forth the good news itself. So evangelism really just involves telling the truth about God through the gospel to sinners, which really goes back to what you said in the previous question, that we should be unbiased and unreserved in expressing that truth. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that I find interesting that um, tends to be a a distinctive of Reformed theology is the gospel, properly speaking, is not an invitation, but it's a command. And that's, that's important is that when we as Reformed Christians proclaim the gospel, what we do is we preach first the law. We, we, we preach first that man is a sinner and needs a savior. And then we command 
people to repent and believe. So when when they come and say, what must I do to be saved? Peter doesn't say, well, if you'll just invite Jesus Christ into your argument, he's standing at the door waiting and, and he wants to, he's knocking and all you got to do is open the door. That's the, There's that, no doorknob on the outside. That's the closest uh, thing I got to Joel Olstein <laughs> as that impersonation. I could probably do better. Is that what I'm that was? Try. Um, instead, he says... No, this is, you are commanded, right? Imperatives. He uses imperatives. And then Paul, when he's on Mars Hill, he doesn't say, um, God invites all of you to join him in his fellowship. He says, God commands all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, so the reformed perspective on um, preaching in general and preaching the gospel specifically is confrontational. And I don't mean that in like an aggressive manner, although some sometimes you have to be aggressive. But when we preach the gospel, it demands a response. It demands a response. And if it doesn't demand right. a response, you're doing it wrong. The the Arminian perspective on the gospel tends to be, or the main, you know, the the sort of general evangelical perspective tends to be this invitational thing that God is just waiting for you to do the right thing. And he's just, he's sitting there on his hands waiting for you to come forward and do the thing. So, so he can just, he can just enjoy your fellowship where in reality, God is standing poised to judge you and he's provided a means for escape and he's commanding you to make use of that. And so if you don't, then that's not a neutral act. Deciding not to make mean, make use of the means of grace to escape the coming judgment is not a neutral act. It's actually a further act of rebellion. So I think those are probably the, the main things that I would say are different, um, is the efficacy of prayer and the purpose for it. It's perfectly fine if someone comes to you and says, I don't know how to pray for salvation. I don't, I, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't know how for you to walk them through some sort of formalized written prayer to lead them through that process. Of course. They don't know what to pray, so help them. Um, right. But that prayer itself is not the saving factor. They're coming to you probably because of the effectual call of the Holy Spirit, which means they're already united to Christ. And what you're doing is you're confirming that by by prayer versus make causing it by prayer. So I think those are kind of the two big things. That's a really good distinction. And the last thing I would add is that what happens after that prayer? Like it, like you said, if somebody comes to you and you sense that there is effectual calling on their heart, that there's a sincerity of wanting to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's the important part there, that we don't want to, as sometimes other traditions do, deliver up the baby to be left on the doorstep, so to speak. So I think what distinguishes this kind of approach to reformed evangelical approach to, let's just say like a common one, would be the idea that we want to go out and build relationships with people, but we don't just want them to get to get them to pair a pair and then send them on their way. We're concerned about making disciples because right. the minute that somebody becomes a Christian, he or she wages a war against the world, the flesh and the devil. And so they need support. We all need support. Right. And so to be brought into the family of God in such a way that you're sitting under good preaching and teaching and that you're continually involved in this person's life, the one whom you've been sharing the gospel with. I think that is a really important distinction that we often kind of miss. It's more about the results and that's not to defame Anybody who's gone out in the past and want to, you know, just preach and share the gospel and see people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Right. That is fantastic. But we're called for more than just, you know, getting people, like you said, to raise hands or to fill out cards or to come up to the altar. Yeah. It's got to be more. Yeah. And one last thought, too, that I think is important to note is the reform perspective on evangelism is that by and large, evangelism happens in the context of the gathered church. 
So, you know, it's not the case that no reformed person ever goes out and sort of street preaches or anything like that. But the Great Commission, as is understood by most reformed commentators, is that the Great Commission is delivered to the apostles, and thus the proper actors in the Great Commission are the apostle successors, which are the elders of the church. And so the the persons in the church, the congregants participate in that, in that they, they bring people into the context of the church. But the making disciples, the teaching and baptizing, teaching and baptizing are both acts that are restricted to the office of elder. So it's not as though... Um, you know, the general evangelical perspective is that we preach the gospel everywhere we go. Well, that's true to an extent, but the formal preaching of the gospel and the evangelistic, the evangelistic activity of the church from a reformed perspective takes place primarily in the Lord's Day worship. And so what you're saying about getting them established with the church, that's almost a non-issue for reform for reformed evangelism because right. they're already there. They already have a logical place to go back to after they become a Christian. You know, we had a, um, we had a big like evangelistic, it wasn't a Billy Graham crusade, but Billy Graham crusades had the same kind of issues. I think it was Luis Palau came to Minneapolis and did this big gospel kind of, uh, revival crusade thing. And we had, um, you know, they always collect cards and we had about a thousand people who had marked that they they had made a first time decision for Christ and put their zip code and so they forwarded those cards to our church all of those people none of them came back none of them came back we had a right. thousand cards sent to our church and we had a 0% return on that and that's probably not uncommon it's not uncommon and so you know i was thinking about this today when i when i got converted at acquire the fire there was thousands of kids giving their life to Christ there was a, there was probably 200 kids from my youth group that gave their life to Christ that night I think there's probably three or four of them that I know that are following Jesus. So there's differences in opinions, but ultimately the only reason I continued with the church, with with a church after that event was because I was already involved in a church that I knew I could go back to. Um, So so that's a kind of a third difference. I think that's important. You're right. That's the process of fruit bearing, of being able to see. I mean, like you say, you don't want to give somebody a false sense of security or hope. But basically, there's nothing wrong, like you said, with coming alongside somebody, sharing, praying with them, and getting them involved in the life of the church to see how God takes hold of that confession, so to speak, yep. or basically confirms it by way of them being involved in the body of Christ and bearing good fruit. Yeah. All right, let's move More on to the next question. Here we go. Hey, guys, this is uh, Adam Cullen from Colorado. I love what you guys do on your show. It's been super helpful and informative. Um, just wanted to call and ask you guys to um, give your perspective on Two Kingdom Theology, um, whether you think it's biblical or not, as well as I've also been trying to figure out a little bit more about Calvin's doctrine of the lesser magistrate um, and just wondering what scriptural support that doctrine has. Again, love what you're doing. Thanks, guys. All right, so this is a great question from Adam. I love this because he's just going to have us get right into it right away. So he's got a two-parter. This is two for one right here. Oh, man. So the first is he wanted to hear a little bit about our view on kingdom theology, which we probably can't give a really fair treatment to because it's a really broad spectrum. So I'm not sure exactly what he means by that, but we can give some thoughts. Second part is what is the scriptural support for Calvin's doctrine of the lesser magistrate? So what do you want to tackle first? 
So this is a two for one question, much like God's two for one kingdom. So what what I think he's getting at is uh, the <laughs> nice. concept of reformed. It's called two kingdom theology. Right. And so two kingdom theology comes on a variety of flavors, um, all the way from you know the most extreme um, views, which would say something like it wasn't wrong for Nero to crucify Christians, and they they would have been wrong to object for, to it because that would be stepping into the other kingdom too much more uh, reasonable and less extreme views. But the basic idea is that God operates and influences the world primarily in two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the world, which is the civil government. And there's the kingdom of, of God or the spiritual kingdom, which is the church. And so the, the two are not the same and they don't overlap. That doesn't mean that, you know, some of the most extreme views would deny that, but most views would not say that the church is is forbidden from talking to or influencing the state or that the state is forbidden from influencing or talking to the church. But they would affirm King, two kingdom theology affirms that these two kingdoms are uh distinct and and maintain their own particular realms. So the church is not responsible for enforcing civil law, it's not responsible for temporal punishment and the 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 state needs to sort of stay out of spiritual matters. Um so that's kind of the two kingdom view which is a, I I hold a more moderate view of that kind of Mike Horton's version of it where we have these two kingdoms and they interact with each other but they're still distinct. Yeah, that's pretty much my perspective on it as well. I mean, to be honest, I haven't given a lot of attention to thinking through kind of the finer points of that. I just know that there's probably, of course, like many things, a lot of errors in the extreme positions on that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's there's um a couple good books out there. Um, the one that I usually see recommended, I haven't read it, but it comes very highly uh, recommended. And Van Drunen is a great uh, a great thinker. It's called Living in God's Two Kingdom. Uh, oh yeah, this is a good book. Van so I'll I'll put a link to that in the Amazon carousel if you want to check it out. Um, there's a lot of other options out there. Um, if you pick up Mike Horton's Ordinary, for example, you'll see kind of how the two kingdoms weave itself in there. Um, and then you'll also see Lutheranism has a, a different kind of perspective on two kingdoms, uh, but it's worth checking out as well. But just make sure that you understand the differences in what you're getting at just because both of them call themselves two kingdom theology doesn't mean they're the same thing. So by way of review, because we've spoken about this before, the lesser magistrate doctrine declares that when the superior or higher civil authority makes an unjust or immoral law or decree, the lesser or lower ranking civil authority has both a right and a duty to refuse obedience to that superior authority. And this does come from Calvin. Calvin writes about this in Institutes of Christian Religion. And he basically says, let me quote him. He says, Calvin writes, whereas private Christians must submit to the ruling of authorities, there are popular magistrates who have been appointed to curb the tyranny of kings. When these magistrates connive at kings, when they tyrannize and insult over the humbler of the people, they fraudulently betray the liberty of the people because God has appointed them guardians of that liberty. So I'm really curious to hear from you. Where have you heard or what do you think are some support passages from scripture that kind of lead us into thinking along the lines of what Calvin is writing about here. Yeah, so so this tends to come from um, a strict interpretation of Romans 13. And so so the idea is that Romans is written to uh, to the church, but to individuals in the church. And and so the, the idea is that God appoints 
um, rulers and governing authorities for a particular purpose. And that particular purpose is to, um, is to maintain civil law, to protect its citizens, more or less, um, and to be a terror to evil. And so it exercises the sword in that, um, that aim. But we all know that um, human governments are composed of humans and humans are sinners. And so human governments don't execute that um, task perfectly. And so right. Calvin's doctrine here is saying that individual Christians do not have the liberty to rise up against their rulers as individuals. However, uh, lesser magistrates, lower ranking magistrates, not only have a responsibility or a right to, but they have the responsibility to. And the the reason for that goes back to Romans 13, that those lesser magistrates are appointed for the same purpose as the greater magistrates, and that is to be a terror to evil, even if that evil is a higher ranking magistrate. It's from above. Right. Yeah. So right on. I'm sure that there are a lot more passages and a lot more um a lot more arguments that that Calvin uses to develop this and others use to develop it. It's not something I've studied much in depth, but what I understand is that it's kind of just a logical outflow or an application of Romans uh, 13. I think that's probably the strongest piece of scripture that supports that. And it is a logical conclusion. Have you heard some of these other ones though? Like have you ever used somebody use uh, Exodus one as not. an example? So, you know, because this is weird. So I think this is kind of probably more reading in like an eisegesis of scripture. But I've heard people say, well, Exodus 1, you have the Hebrew midwives, right. Shifra and Pua, who disobey Pharaoh's command to kill the Hebrew baby boys. And then Exodus one seventeen, we read, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And of course, they were blessed for that. That's not, I don't think, an exact one-to-one comparison here. Yeah. Um, that that's just that's a whole I think different subject. I've also heard sometimes people cite First Samuel fourteen, and this is I think even more derivative. And that's at the time when Saul had made a decree that the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day, and he was trying to go after David. So he says, "Curse be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I avenge my enemies." So Jonathan, his son, is out doing his thing. He's really tired. He finds some honey. He eats it, and basically the argument is, Saul says, "All right." We find out it was Jonathan. He has to die. And the people intercede on his behalf. Right. And so I've heard that often used as well as an argument of, well, where here you have the lesser magistrate coming in and trying to go against the tyranny of Saul. I think those are probably weak arguments. I'm not sure that we see a lot in scripture itself in the narrative form that gives us an example of, well, here's where we see the lesser magistrate come into play in kind of all of its, in a fully orbed way. Yeah. And I, I would agree with you that those those might be kind of like, subtle supports that fit into the system. But I don't think, you know, the, the Hebrew midwives, uh, they're not, they're not magistrates. So exactly. Um, and the people in um, Saul's day are not magistrates and the text doesn't seem to present them as though like, well, this is actually like the town council is rising up against Saul. It's right. like all of the soldiers <laughs> that were there say, no, we're not going to do this. Um, and they do it. Be- they do that for the same reason that we would say the lesser magistrate would. They see that Saul is acting unjustly. They see that God has clearly blessed um, Jonathan for his activity. Um, and so they say, no, Saul, your your judgment is wrong. And they just refuse to follow it. Um, and, you know, Saul then does this whole like lot casting thing. And he, he kind of like says, well, the Lord will judge between us. And it's confirmed by the right. Lord that it's the right thing to do not to follow through on his vow. Um, but I think too, you know, I think it bears saying that I think while Calvin's position is generally right, 
There are also times, I think, where the general population needs to resist the authorities. So, Agreed. you know, if, if someone came into my house and gave me a gun, the police officer came into my house and gave me a gun and said to me, you need to shoot your wife in the head. I'm going to tell him no. And, and that's not because I'm some lesser magistrate. And Calvin's, Calvin's reading on a strict, um, strict literal wooden surface level would say that I don't have a right to, to deny that, that request or that order from a, right. from a police officer who is acting on behalf of the magistrate. So I think we have to exercise wisdom and prudence. The other thing for us to consider is that at least in America, where most of our listeners are, you and I actually are lesser magistrates in a certain sense, is that the government is of the people and by the people and for the people. And so in, in the United States, at least, the magistrate system is a little bit different uh, but there are still proper ways for us to execute that, um, execute that prerogative as as citizens to call our our elected leaders to account. Um, if anything, the elected leaders are actually the lesser magistrate because they're our representatives, not the other way around. We don't represent the president; the president actually represents us. So, it, just some food for thought. I, I don't know that that plays in too directly, but I've seen some Christians try to employ this. Um, in too direct of a fashion to our system. And it doesn't really apply the same way to our system. But a good example, um, we've pulled it out in the past, is when a state legislature refuses to um, recognize or refuses to um, enforce what they believe to be an unjust law. Now, the state government is not a lesser magistrate when compared to the the, the um, federal government. But it's still one magistrate who is resisting the tyranny or what they perceive to be tyranny of another magistrate. And in doing so, they're executing their task of preserving justice and liberty and, and preserving their citizens' um, safety. So I think it's important for us to, to recognize the different applications. If anything, these passages just communicate that there are appropriate times for God's people to stand in the gap yeah. and push out against some kind of tyranny that goes against God's law. So we have here... Shifra and Pua, for instance, there, which are just sweet names, which are, they're actually, they blatantly lie to Pharaoh's face about what's happening to right. these baby boys. And yet God still blesses them. That's of course not liberty or license to just go around lying to everybody. But what we see here is they are purposefully choosing to fear God. And that should be the guiding, of course, for all of our actions. Right. If you really want to nerd out on this, one thing that I read that's been helpful, and I think this also kind of speaks to Every theologian is a product of their time. And so John Calvin is writing from a particular vantage point. And so also is John Knox, who's written a lot about this. And his appellation to the nobles of Scotland is particularly enlightening, I think, on this subject. Also, he had a contemporary named Christopher Goodman, who wrote this sweet little essay with a really long title called How Superior Powers Ought to Be Obeyed by Their Subjects and Wherein They May Lawfully by God's Word Be Disobeyed and Resisted. Man, I love Puritan titles. <laughs> so if I, I ever write a book like that, it's going to have a title like that. I've just decided. Like that's, that's not something, that's not a title like that sells like on Amazon or Zondervan or Banner of Truth. Yeah, sometimes I see like blog posts that are titled like that that are like super long and you can tell that they're just trying to like cram in search terms into their title. Right. I mean, this is before SEO. Right. So you got these guys just writing some sweet titles. I mean, that's basically like a summarization of everything that's that's in the document. But those exactly. those are good and we can probably provide links to that. Yeah. You'll have to send me the name of that cuz I'm not going to remember it, but uh, it's a great name. It's a great name. Last voicemail? Last voicemail. Let's do it. Hello. Uh, my name is Jamie. And first off, I just wanted to say that um, I 
really, really enjoy um, listening to your podcast. Um, it gets me through many, many uh, long commute hours here in the uh, D.C. area. I live in Northern Virginia, and um, you do a lot of sitting in traffic in Northern Virginia, and uh, you guys um, have been really, really enjoying um, listening to to your episodes. I mean, I've, I've uh, been edified very much, so thank you for that. And my question is regarding there seems to be a little confusion hearing some kind of uh i guess alternate views from time to time on this but in christ's um, earthly ministry my question is when he was doing miracles um like calming the sea uh you know raising lazarus healing the sick um the different miracles that he that he did um, throughout his earthly ministry, was he doing them from his divine nature, uh, being that he is fully God and fully man, and that those were just acting out of his divine nature? Was that primarily how he was doing his miracles, or was he primarily doing them as a man who was given the Spirit without measure, who was full of the Holy Spirit, and doing them through the power of the Holy Spirit, but primarily as a human doing the miracle. And I, I've heard, you know, different, different things on this. And along with that, when he would know things about, like, say, the woman at the well, and he knew that she had five husbands, and now she's living in sin with the sixth uh, person, did he know that because he was God? Or was it because the Holy Spirit revealed that information to him and that he was relying on that to be revealed to him um, in his human nature, so to speak. So um, it, it's, it seems to be, there seems to be some debate on that, and um, there, there's just so much that happens in the Gospels that make you question, um, you know, which is it? And, and is there a, is, are there times when it's one and times when it's the other? So if you could you know, shed some light on that as to when, um, you know, we might say that he was acting strictly out of his divine nature or if we can ever know for sure um, when that was happening. So hope that made sense. Um, thanks again, guys. Have a good one. All right. So, Jamie, I'm so glad that you're part of the Brotherhood and the traffic in Northern Virginia is epic. I'm familiar with that. Yeah, I've never been to Northern Virginia, so I'll take your word for it. It's just all traffic all the time. So it would be great if you could like get out of your car and just like walk along the river, right? Is that <laughs> yeah, what you're saying? I guess. Yeah, that'd be great. So we actually covered, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this. Um, we we kind of snuck it in towards the end of our show because we actually did an entire episode basically on this question. We did. So we'll put a link into it. Um, the title of the episode is called The Genuine Humanity of Christ. You can search for that on the website. Um, and, you know, we, we covered it pretty in depth, but the basic answer of it is that when we see Christ operating during his earthly ministry, he is operating as a human according to human restrictions. So right. it's not the case that Jesus kind of like flips into his divine alter ego in order to walk on water. It's not the case that he, you know, accesses his secret God knowledge when he sees that um, Nathaniel is is eating under the fig tree. Um, what it is, is he's acting as a prophet in that that case. And the, the, 
the prophet is being revealed things by the Holy Spirit that it, that right. validates his message and validates his identity as Messiah. Um, likewise, walking on water, it is intended to teach us that this is no mere man, but it's intended to teach us that this is a man who has the Holy Spirit without measure. And so he's able to do these miraculous things because he has the Holy Spirit. Now, we commented on on that last episode that none of the miracles that um, that Jesus does, with the possible exception of uh, healing a blind man who is blind from birth, it, the text specifically says that no one had ever heard of such a thing. But the other miracles, people had heard of such a thing because people had been raised from the dead, and people would again be raised from the dead after Christ ascended into heaven. So the the prophets of old and the apostles after Christ are doing miracles by the same power that Christ was. And that power is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, Christ is uniquely anointed with the Holy Spirit in a way that the prophets and the um, apostles were not. But it does not change the fact that they were performing miracles by that same power. Right on. I think what's important to remember here is that there is a temptation when we read the Gospels to say how glorious these miracles that Jesus is doing, that we want to say, we know that he's the son of God. He's also the son of man. And so clearly it seems here he's somehow invoking his divine authority, his divine nature to do these things. But that really is a really mild and subtle form of docetism. Right. That, that's like a sliding scale there because only God can save us, and yet only the incarnate God can save us wholly. Right. So I always go back to thinking about the Chalcedonian maxim of distinction without separation. Yep. The Son of God became the Son of Man, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. So when we strip that away, we're actually are doing more harm than good. I know we're trying to sort out, well, how is it that Jesus is doing these things? How does he know this stuff? But I like what you said by reminding us of the prophet, priest, and king. Those aren't just titles. It's not like he just gets a business card. Right. It says like Jesus, comma Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Those are actual identities. He has those offices. He has those responsibilities and all those abilities that come along with it. Right. So that, I would suggest going back and listening to that episode because I think we talk about that in some greater depth. We do. But I think you are on the same page that the great thing about this question and the great thing about Jesus is he's truly God and truly man. Like right. he cannot heal what he was not. So he has to be truly man. And at the same time, we see him with, basically he's, because he's the second Adam, this seems like so plain, but so brilliant. Because he's the second Adam, we know that he has to be just like us, but also not like us because he's living the life that we were supposed to live to begin with. Right. And the only way that he can do that is if he is truly man. And all these things are coming by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And just in case you think we're making this up, I just want to read from Acts uh, chapter 2. And this is Peter's sermon um, to the, the Jews at the day of Pentecost. Starting in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So the point that Peter is making, there's, there's two main points that I want to clue in on. One, that these signs and wonders and mighty works are signs that God, and probably the Father is in here, in view here. Yeah, the Father is in view. God the Father did through the Son. And then we can kind of add in in parentheses, by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So it's not the son doing these miracles. Now we know that the external works of the Trinity are indivisible. And so it's not the case that the son, according to his divinity was not engaged in these miracles. But the point is that it's not Christ as a man performing these miracles. It's not Christ, the single person tapping into his holy divine power, right? It's not, it's not Clark Kent dropping his glasses down for a minute to shoot ray beams out of his eyes. It's it's the Father operative in the Son through the Spirit that performs these mighty works and signs. And then at the first half of the verse, that these signs are a means by which the Father attests to the listener that Christ is who he said he was. And so so we see time and again, time and time again, and this goes back to um, the question we had about cessationism last week. The the miraculous signs in the Bible are always, 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 always revelatory. They're always there to either reveal new truth or to testify to the authority right. and veracity of the message of someone who is proclaiming the truth. So that's true of the prophets of old. It's true of Moses. It's true of um, everything we see in the Old Testament, everything we see in the New Testament, right? Moses does miracles in order to validate who he is when he goes to the Israelites the first time. He does miracles to validate who God is when the when the Israelites are grumbling in the desert because they don't have water, he performs a miracle, right? When he goes to to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, there's kind of an implicit question in Pharaoh's response that, well, who are you, what are you going to go do? You're going to serve your God in the wilderness? Well, you know, my gods are stronger than your gods. Well, he then, the, the plagues come as a result of that to attest to the truth of who God is to the person being preached to. So the miracles of Christ are really no different. And the Westminster Confession says as much, right? Christ operates in the office of a prophet primarily by revealing to us the will of God for our salvation by his word and spirit. So his ongoing prophetic ministry now operates by word and spirit. His prophetic ministry during his earthly humiliation was also by word and spirit, but the spirit operated through miracles at that time. Right. Basically, that prophetic ministry was corroborating the reality that the kingdom of God had come. So this is not really like a Bruce Brenner situation. Is that right? Bruce Did Brenner? Right? Jenner? Who is the, who's the Hulk? That's Bruce Banner. Banner? Bruce Jenner is Banner. the transvestite. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Bruce Almighty, and I was like, that is like a major <laughs> Second Commandment violation movie. Yes. Yes, it is. All right, so clearly I still need to brush up on my superheroes. I was just trying to come up with somebody that, like, I liked your Clark Kent thing because that would, I guess he can, but he's still always Superman, right? Right. He, yeah, it is kind of so, like Bruce Banner. He can he can choose okay. to be the Hulk, although in this last movie he had a little bit of uh, performance anxiety, so he, could, he couldn't be the Hulk, but... Um, <laughs> How did yeah. I know you were going to correct me with some type of nuance on that? There's always nuance in, in those... <laughs> Uh, I just found out the title for the next uh, Avengers movie, and I'm wicked stoked about it. It's called Avengers Endgame, which is like the most epic, daunting title of any Avengers or any movie ever, I think. How many movies are there? Well, there's like 20 Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. There's four Avengers movies. And the fact that you have that just off the top of your head is impressive. Yeah. Impressive might not be the right word, but it's something. (laughs) It is something. That's good stuff. Well, we basically just did a whirlwind of all kinds of topics we did. on this cast. I'm kind of out of breath. Yeah, I'm ready for a nap. Yeah, let's do it. So how can people get in touch with us if they were either totally displeased 
by our answers and our ramblings, or they have some other observation or question they want to pose. Uh, the best way to do it is to leave a voicemail for us. You can call 607-444-2767. It's 444-2767. Or you can send us an email. You can hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. um, And we would love to interact with you and respond to your questions and comments through those venues. Join the conversation. Yes. Well, let's go take a nap, Jesse. Not together because we're in different states. (laughs) Not that I'd be opposed to taking a nap with my brother. But anyway, (laughs) until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What if I'm far from home? Oh, brother, I will hear you call. What if I lose it all? Oh, sister, I will help you So even by this definition, at some point, um, I just spilled something. Hold on. <laughs> I got too excited. Hold on. This is just not my day. No. Oh, that is awful.